Why do we trust? This is a fascinating aspect of human experience that binds us together or pushes us apart. Some of us see being trusted as a higher compliment than being loved. Neuroscience is shedding new light on what happens when we experience trust. Oxytocin, a hormone associated with our willingness to trust, is produced, and parts of the brain associated with pleasure activate. There's a suggestion that estrogen is conductive to oxytocin flow and makes women more likely to trust, while testosterone inhibits, making men less likely to trust others. Trust enables cooperative action. It reduces unhelpful resistance, so clearly it's critical for change and the agility within organizations. Research by Adam Waits, a professor at Northwestern University, suggests that people who trust more register an increase in productivity by 50%. They experience less burnout by 40%. They have 29% higher life satisfaction and 74% less stress and 106% more energy. But trust is a complex, slippery topic. It's not easily defined by simple models of competency and character, because much of what informs why and how we trust others and institutions happens beyond our awareness. For example, our physical and emotional state plays a huge role in our capacity to trust others, but this is rarely explored in the literature. As with most leadership challenges, the best place to start in building trust is with yourself. Do you trust yourself? Are you worthy of the trust of others? Do you honor your commitments? Take accountability for your mindset and how your emotional and physical state influences your judgment. In this show, we talked to Ashley Richeld, who has made a study of trust and its impact at an organizational level. One of her findings is that trusted companies outperform their peers by 400%, so it's clearly a source of competitive advantage. In our uncertain and often difficult world, people, communities and organizations that can be trusted will become ever more valued and valuable. Hey folks, welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast, the show born from the belief that we need deeper, more accountable, and more human leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, Mr. Gomes? I'm feeling alive. I'm feeling full of the joys of whatever it is. I can't say spring, but um, I don't know what it is. I'm feeling very, <laughs> I'm feeling very, um, yeah, awake, uh, which well, you is- you look full. It's amazing for- well, <laughs> That's, we're not talking about my diet again. No, I am feeling particularly um, positive, and I always feel that's interesting when there's so much challenging stuff happening uh, in the world right mm. now, particularly with the, you know, the UK political uh, scene is quite interesting. Let's leave it there. Um, so, yeah, Scott, how are you feeling? I don't think we should compare our country's political no, uh, no, scenes no, at the moment. That could be a whole no, other show. Um, I'm feeling, I'm actually feeling present and centered. I, and I didn't start the day that way, but I was able to find some time for 
a little meditation, and uh, I feel grounded. I feel ready. I feel excited uh, to be joined by our guests today because today we're talking about a critical topic of trust. And our guest is Ashley Reicheld, a principal at Deloitte Digital, who's built a tool to help companies measure, predict, and build trust with their customers, workforce, and partners. She's written a new book along with Amelia Dunlop called The Four Factors of Trust, How Organizations Can Earn Lifelong Loyalty. Ashley, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Thanks for having me. Ashley, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? I was thinking about that as you were all chatting. I'm feeling really excited and it's actually really quiet. It's going to be the only quiet moment in my house all day long with the dogs on the walk and the twins at school. So nice and nice and restful. Nice. So just jumping into it, you clearly uh, believe that trust is an important way for framing organizational performance and you cite numerous statistics. For instance, that trusted companies outperform their peers by 400 percent but you go further suggesting that it's the single greatest opportunity to create competitive advantage and you talk about your goal being to help leaders measure predict trust and act in ways that build trust because uh, you believe it's the pathway to loyalty so can you talk to us about that you know holding price constant trust is the single biggest driver of human behavior that is true for customers it's true for we're finding employees and partners if you understand and are able to engender trust with those audiences, then they do the kinds of things that you want them to do. When customers trust you, they are 1.8 times more likely to purchase from you. They're 1.4 times more likely to spend more with your brand. On the employee side, employees are 50% less likely to leave and they're 1.8 times more likely to be motivated to work. So trust drives the kinds of behaviors we're all speaking. And to your point, that links directly to financial results. In our research, we found that those companies with a high trust ID score outperformed everybody else by up to 4X. And the reason that number is so extraordinary is because the marginal benefit of trust increases as trust increases. So for example, if you were to move your trust score from say 30 to 31, you would see roughly a 3% expected stock return increase. But if you move it from 60 to 61, you see roughly a 6% expected stock return increase. So as you earn trust, the benefits explode. I think that's really interesting. And if you kind of ground that in a relationship, that kind of exponential impact of trust, you could see, you know, like your, your friendship group and people in your peers and so on, that how that might, what you might be prepared to trust people with. Um, so I can, I can feel the, uh, the rightness of that idea. I'm um, glad you said feel, because that's exactly what it is. When, yeah. you, when you talk to people, it's not that people don't think trust is important. We all intuitively know it is. So you, you feel it. And when we ask people how you define it, often we get the answer of, oh, I don't know. I just know it when I see it. It's really the challenge of helping people to break it down so that they can actually actively build it versus just anticipate it. Can you give us a little bit of background on you and, and how you've got to the point where trust has become so an important part of your work? Well, I um, I study human behavior and I'm fascinated by why people do what they do and often why we say one thing and then go off and do an entirely different thing. So as I was trying to think about how we can help our organizations to earn the loyalty of the constituents in the organizations, I really wanted to dig into the topic of trust. Fundamentally, trust is what makes things frictionless. When we trust each other, 
things just move the way we want them to move. Um, and you can picture this in a contracting process, right? How many pages of legal documentation does it take for us to create a relationship between organizations and have a dialogue? Trust helps make all of that a lot easier. So for my part, I started studying it a number of years ago and with the goal of helping leaders to break it down. I should also note that I have a bit of a, a traveler's background. I have the pleasure of living abroad for longer than I've lived here in the U.S., and that was really great because it gave me a perspective on kind of how different cultures interact, build, and do things differently. And I consider myself a little bit of a global citizen. So trying to understand trust in human behavior and who those humans are and how that might vary by culture. So could we get, can we anchor around a definition of trust? Yes, we, we, I would love to do, do that? that. So trust is built on four factors. And this is true whether you're here or abroad. It's true whether um, you're an employee or a customer. You earn trust by making a good promise, which we describe as having humanity, treating people fairly, treating them with empathy, and doing that with transparency, telling them what they need to know to make a decision, sharing your motivations. Those two factors make up your ability to make that good promise. And of course, you have to be able to deliver on that promise, which we define as having capability, the products or services or experiences that people are looking for, and then doing that reliably over and over and over again. Trust is built when you make and keep good promises. So before we dive into that framework you started to explain there, and it's in your book, um, can we get a sense of your take on the challenges of building trust in given the broader tensions of society, polarization being at the top of what seemingly automatically alienates people from each other before they've even had a chance to build trust? What, what are you seeing there? From a well, I, no matter where you sit in the world today, there's incredible conflict, tension, um, whether that's because we're at war or whether that's because we sit in a country with incredibly divisive politics, there are organizations who've been measuring trust for the last 40, 50 years. And what you'll find is that trust has been on the decline the entire time it's been studied. So we are at the lowest point of trust in since we started measuring it. That is true for trust in government. It's true trust in religion, in organized institutions, in big business. So we are at a state of low trust. And my guess is you probably feel that too. Mm. I feel it deeply. In fact, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm, it's, it seems like we're in a time where, especially in the sort of political landscape where people don't even necessarily have to be honest or held to account. It's almost, it's almost like um, there's a sense of permission uh, to say whatever you want to say, even if you don't back it up with facts, which then I think, you know, in my perception, I want to get your take on this, that kind of further erodes and polarizes people pointing at the other side saying, see, this, there's all this deception and deception. And it's feeling, you mentioned feeling, I feel deeply this sort of fear around, you know, how do we, is there a hope? How do we build trust, right? So maybe we can't answer that at the sort of macro level, but I'm particularly interested in organizations as well. Like how do they build trust and where does it go wrong for them? For my part, I think it needs to be a measurable goal. Organizations tend to do what they can measure. And if they're not measuring trust, they probably don't have a good understanding of what their trust is and why it is the way it is. So we always tell organizations to start first by understanding where you are and do that with all the key relationships in your organization. It's not just customers you have to care about. It's also your employees. It's also your regulators and all the other stakeholders that are part of your organization. 
when you understand where you sit across the four factors, then you can lean in to build trust more specifically. And what we're finding is that really is human. It's individual. Trust is human. It's an emotion. And so you have to think about it, not at necessarily just the macro level, but how you're engaging with individuals and what they need from you. We did some work with a global airline last summer. And what we would do is take passengers with the same loyalty score, so their likelihood to recommend, and then we would look at their trust score right underneath it. And it was fascinating because when you took identical people with identical loyalty, one might have low humanity. And the action for her is to wave the seat fee to let her sit by her kid, which I would argue is a benefit for the whole plane, not just mom. And on the other hand, you have somebody with the same loyalty score, but who's low in reliability. And while you can and should treat him like a human, what's going to move the needle for him is making up for that three-hour delay he had last week, whether that's miles or a drink voucher, making him feel whole again after that mistreatment, and then telling him why you're going to be on time next time. You have to lean into the specific problem for the specific person rather than treat it at a meta level. So can we break down um, the... The, the content of the book and these four factors um, that you believe help leaders to build trust and maybe bring uh, to each to life a little bit with some of the, the kind of positive uh, influences and behaviors that you can pull out. Sure. I, well, I can give you an example from our own organization, actually. Deloitte, um, we like to say that we drink our own champagne. <laughs> so we take our own medicine too. Um, we measure trust for practitioners and we are well above average on most, but we found that we were pretty low on transparency. So for us, that could take a number of forms. One of the common challenges across practitioners, so whether you're senior, whether you're junior, was pay transparency. Why am I being paid what I'm paid? How does that how is that relative to everybody else? We were finding that our practitioners could potentially find more information on Glassdoor than they could find at Deloitte. That is a big transparency challenge. So the organization put a big push in for consulting to be able to pull out for the year end. Here's where you sit. Here's the quartile you're in. Here's how many people are in it. Here's how many people are in the other quartiles. Here's how that's associated with your ratings. And here's the direct link to how you're compensated, both in terms of your bonus and your salary. So just a, a tangible way to help take something that was previously a black box and break it down for people so that it was transparent. And doing that without sharing confidential information, like how much Joe over there is paid. And so how, how are humanity, transparency, capability, and reliability linked? How do they form an ecosystem? So if you look at the logo on our book, you'll see that we draw the four factors as an infinite loop. And the reason we do that is because they tend to move together. It's really difficult to treat somebody with a lot of humanity, but then not be at all transparent with them that has an impact on each other. So the factors do tend to move together and they have increasingly started to influence one another. So for example, um, our recent studies have been trying to understand how trust varies by generation and Gen Z has been utterly fascinating to me. It is a low trust generation. In fact, they trust less than most other generations and the way they earn trust is different. They are more, um, they put more emphasis on the intent side of the equation. So humanity and transparency. But what was particularly interesting to me is that their intent scores actually influence their capability scores. If an organization doesn't have a positive intent as they see it, then they rate them as less capable, which means that those organizations aren't part of the consideration set anymore. Capability and reliability are table stakes. 
You don't go to a restaurant where you're going to get food poisoning. You're not going to get in a plane that you think is going to fall to the sky. Those are basic requirements for doing business. So the relationship between the four factors is quite strong. I love these four factors. Um, and I love what you're saying about the, the differences in terms of what people give weight to. So I'm, as I'm listening to you explain that, um, what are some ways that leaders can look at their organization or even maybe a smaller team that they might run and kind of be able to best ascertain which of the factors matter most to the people on their team and what they need to focus on? Well, so let's talk about that team structure for a second, because arguably trust is core to a highly functioning team. When you trust one another, you're able to engage in constructive conflict. Think about it this way. If you don't feel safe in your team structure, you're probably not going to raise your hand and say, oh, I don't know about what you're saying, Ashley. It doesn't sound quite right. Or we think the data is wrong. So you don't have that constructive conflict that you need. And when you don't have that conflict, it's really difficult to generate commitment and accountability. So high-functioning teams has trust, have trust as a baseline. It's what allows us to engage in ways that we can kick around a problem and make it better and all get committed to the solution that we align on. So trust is an incredibly important lever. And the four factors apply individually to teams just as much as they do to big organizations. Trust is human. And in all of our research, it doesn't matter if you're in China or in the US, it doesn't, Holland, it doesn't matter if you're an employee or you're a supply chain partner. The way you build trust is the is simply the way you build trust. These are the four factors. So with my teams, for example, what I do when I kick off a project is to use something I call the, the project placemat. Um, it's a really simple tool, actually. It just lets people write down the things that they care about. So we talk about things like, when do you like to work? What motivates you? What are the kinds of things that you like to do at work? Do you have any things that we should be aware of? Like, do you do yoga on Thursday nights? Is that just an off night for you? And what I find is that that gives people permission. It starts to tell them what's important to you is important to me. It also tells them that we're a little bit alike. I have some things that I'm not good at. You have some things that you're not good at. And leaders who are able to demonstrate vulnerability are making it okay for their teams to demonstrate vulnerability too. And individually, trust is built in moments of vulnerability. Now, you, you asked how you measure it. I want to talk about that because it's really important. I encourage companies to actually ask the question. And if you go onto the website or read the book, you'll see that we framed out each of the questions for each of the factors. We've studied those every which way from Sunday <laughs> to try to make sure that they are, in fact, scientifically driving trust. And you can download those. We encourage all organizations to use them. By measuring trust across the four factors, you not just understand your total trust score, you also understand where you might be falling down. You might be pretty good on humanity, but maybe you're not as reliable as you'd like to be. And it might be something unusual that's causing that. For example, um, leaders often show up to meetings a couple minutes late. And you got to think about what does that tell your team in terms of how important your time is versus their time? How does that make people feel about your level of reliability? Where, where across all the experiences that you've got, are you finding that trust is hardest to build today? You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't actually think it's necessarily about hard or not hard. If I had to say where it's hard, it really is when it's low. Trust is harder to build coming from a point of low trust versus high trust. And you see that in performance, right? As you mm. get more trust, those results tend to be exponential. 
So low trust is definitely harder and, you, and it's slower progress versus high trust. But we aren't seeing industries, for example, that are harder to build in others. There are certainly capabilities that make it easier or harder. Um, for example, we have found higher trust scores amongst B2B relationships versus B2C, which makes sense to me. B2B is kind of one to few, whereas B2C is one to many. And you're able to engender trust more in those close relationships than you might be when it's a farther away relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. When you've betrayed trust, what have you learned about rebuilding it more mm. quickly? Oof, it takes time. Um, trust is something that needs to be intentional. It is not something that you can put in the bank and rely on to continue to earn interest. Trust goes away if you don't maintain it. So it takes intentional focus and ongoing care to make sure that you are still achieving trust with the people that you're trying to achieve it with. So you, from, from this framework, you've created a way to measure trust, which you started to talk about, um, which is called, well, we'll let you talk about that. Can we, can we explore how you use that and uh, what leaders can do with it? Sure. So we created something called the trust ID. Um, it's hard to name things, but this one we're trying to be funny about. Are you trusted? Get it? Trust ID. Yeah. And it really is just a combination of those four factors. We take the scores for humanity and transparency, capability and reliability, and we average them together, taking the people who don't trust and subtracting them from the people who do trust to get a net trust score. And that is how we help organizations break down where they have trust. And we encourage organizations to think about that across levels. So you don't want to look just at your total trust score. It's a great way to understand how well you're doing overall, but really break it down. How are you doing with employees? How does that vary by level of seniority, for example? Do you see differences in gender that you should be caring about? And actually on the topic of gender, one of the things that fascinated me in our research was I, we didn't see a lot of differences by demographics. They exist, but they're not actually the biggest drivers of trust. The biggest drivers of trust are, are driven by life experience. And let me try to illustrate that for you. Um, my partner and I uh, lived in Holland for a long time, and we came back about eight years ago and decided to have kids. We had kids here in Massachusetts, and they are now six-year-old twins, one was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was just 16 months old and our son just this summer. So for us, we always have health top of mind. Now we're going to go visit my parents in Ohio for Thanksgiving. We learned that Ohio doesn't recognize my partner as a parent. Even though she's on the birth certificate in Massachusetts, in Ohio, she's not a parent, which means that if we have a problem and end up in the hospital, she has no decision rights over the care for the kids. To safely be able to visit my parents, we had to adopt our own kids, which is crazy to think about. Um, and the reason I call that out is because it's not that being gay makes you trust more or less, but how you're treated or how you experience it really does influence your trust. So when organizations try to understand what is driving trust, we encourage them to break it down by what the experiences might be. And some of those stand out. We find, for example, that there is a correlation between seniority and trust. The more senior you are in an organization, the more you trust. It is quite a one-to-one um, -one relationship. And that means a couple things. So for starters, people who are more senior in an organization have more agency and control over outcomes. We control budgets. We set objectives. Arguably, that's a lot more control than the, the person who walks in the door and is given a laptop and is getting heads down to work. 
And then of course you also are, you, you learn to set expectations differently. You've been around the block and you know what to expect. And those two things really drive trust. But what we encourage organizations to look at is the gap between the two. If your senior leaders trust you way up here this much and your junior leaders trust you way down here, there's a pretty significant gap between the people who are making decisions and the people who those decisions are made for. So staying with demographics for a moment, I hope I have this right, but I believe you wrote about a data point that um, that people trust women brands less than men brands. Is that Do I have that right? And, and if so, what's going on there? Not quite. Um, what we found is that women trust less than men as employees. Oh, okay. So there isn't a particular difference in gender by industry, with a few exceptions, one of my favorite of which is the auto industry. Women trust less than men on average for auto. But if you think about it, that makes a little bit of sense. I don't know if there mm. are any women who are listening and have gone to get repairs recently, or perhaps you tried to buy a car. And it's amazing that the sales rep will tell you about the color of the car, but perhaps not the horsepower of the car. Um, another really good example is up until very recently, we used test dummies that are an average 5'10", 180 pound male test dummy. And that means that women are 74% more likely to be severely injured or die in a car accident than men. So with all of these factors, it's not surprising that women perhaps trust less mm. than men in auto. But as employees, women and men actually start out trusting almost the exact same. In fact, it's just a point off. We don't start trusting less than men until we've had some experience in the organization. Right around the time you move into lower management, we start to see a break in trust with men continuing to build trust and women building trust at a much slower rate. In fact, it doesn't actually ever catch up. Even in the most senior levels of an organization, men tend to trust more than women. And again, going back to life experience, that probably makes sense. Mm. Women on the whole are still paid 20 to 30% less than men. And mm. we pay taxes. There's a pink tax on things like feminine products. I am, I never forget going to hotels as a junior consultant. You might be gone for a while. And so you have to send a shirt to dry cleaning. And I would always check the box for men's shirt versus a female blouse because the cost difference was extraordinarily different. One was twice the other. Wow. That's very interesting. I had never mm. thought of that. <laughs> mm -mm. Crazy, right? Especially because honestly, guys, where's there more fabric? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although men probably don't care how it's washed. <laughs> Perhaps you're not washing it at all, right? No. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Definitely. 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 <laughs> uh, hygiene is very important to me. Um, so if we think about... Um, how your framework can help individuals and leaders. How, how do you use that framework to intentionally, because you've got some great diagnostics there. How do you, would you recommend somebody who's a leader trying to build more trust in their organization could use that framework to go about more intentionally building trust? Well, so each of those four factors has a set of attributes that live underneath it. And what we did was try to understand, we ran a whole bunch of regressions to understand what things are actually driving your transparency, what things are driving your humanity. And if you think about workers, um, humanity is driven by feeling cared about. Does my employer take care of my well-being? Do they value me and treat me with respect? Do they treat people fairly? Do I feel engaged by the culture of my employer? So when you measure trust, you can also look at the attributes driving that, and that is your map to figure out how to intervene. So for example, um, if you're low on humanity, 
one of the things that could be driving that is well-being and investing in well-being programs can help to boost how your employees feel about you. Or for example, um, let's say you find yourself low on capability. In a lot of our work, we find that it's often linked to technology. Perhaps you don't have the tools, technology, and resources that you need to do your job. If you have to have work around solutions all the time to get technology to work, that will erode capability. So often it's the C-suite where uh, relationships, you know, cause big issues right down the organization. Trust isn't great often, um, and they're sending out contradictory messages down the organization. What have you learned about helping the C-suite to build trust there um, and role model it through the organization? Well, trust in general is related. So what I mean by that is it's it's not it's not typical to have low trust with customers and high uh, sorry low trust with employees and high trust with customers. For example, they are related. When your workers trust you, they build trust with customers. In fact, in our research, we found that those really good places to work receive 23% higher customer trust than everybody else. And that is true of leadership too. We, we find that trust is typically built at your point of interaction. So it's really your manager and your everyday leader that is impacting your trust more than anybody else. But remember, this trickles down. Your manager has a manager. He or she has a manager. He or she has a manager laying up to the CEO. So the mission and purpose of the company, how our leaders talk about it, how our leaders share information, all of that impacts managers beneath it. And that does trickle down. But arguably, trust is really built at that point of interaction. If you're enjoying the show, you might also appreciate Scott's new book, the Enneagram of Emotional Intelligence, which provides simple, powerful tools to help us better understand ourselves and others. Available online at all major retailers. Can we come back to something I think you touched on earlier, which is the dimensions of competence and intent? Um, as I listen to you talk about this, I'm thinking of of leaders who are probably really well-intentioned and therefore don't think they need to look at this stuff with a, with, you know, a, a level of scrutiny. How do, how does, I guess I have a two part question. How does a leader open up their, their mindset, evolve their mindset, get a little vulnerable, a little honest to look beyond what they intend to do and see what they're actually doing? How do they, how do they get honest about that so they can make some changes and talk to us about competence and intent? Well, so the reason we frame up competence and intent is because trust is built when you meet expectations. If you set an expectation and don't meet it, of course, I'm going to erode trust. So if I, if I have the right intent, but I don't have the competence to deliver on that intent, I won't earn your trust. And I find that often there's a disconnect between what leaders talk about and what actually happens in an organization. Our intention might be one thing, but unless that's delivered throughout the organization, all that's going to do is erode trust. As a leader, it's really difficult to get that balance right um, for a couple of reasons. For starters, people don't like companies to be vulnerable. Wall Street doesn't like companies to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And organizations, I describe organizational vulnerability personally as transparency. The more transparent you are, the more, the more that is the equivalent of being vulnerable as an organization. And our leaders have to be able to make themselves vulnerable to be able to allow people to connect with them, see them as humans in order to be truly great leaders. And that involves a high degree of transparency. But remember, the transparency you're provided, providing has to be 
um, you have to be held accountable for it. You can't go out and say one thing and then have your organization do another thing and earn trust. Did your research find that that happens maybe on micro scale with companies who, you know, put their seven cherished values in the break room of the things that they really care about, but they just become measuring sticks for all the ways people say, but you're not doing that and you're not doing that. We haven't quantified that in my research, but personally, I can tell you, I feel that. And I, I can tell you when I go into a client's office, I often feel that. When you work with um, healthcare companies, for example, one of the things I hear a lot about is you say you're here to improve the health of the world, but you're pricing your drugs so that many, many people can't afford them. How mm -hmm. do you square the circle on those things? The way we tend to think about that is in an organization's purpose. Um, an organization has to be really clear about their purpose. What is it they're trying to achieve outside of just really good profits and money? What's my motivation to come and do it? Is it because we want the world to be a healthier place? Is it because we want to anticipate or help, help people have great vacations? What is it that we're trying to do? And then how do we make sure we live that at every level of the organization? Purpose is only effective when it's believed and executed on by employees. And a lot of that has to do with how leadership designs it, but also what they're doing to make sure that that's cascaded throughout the organization. So for example, if you put your seven principles on the wall, but then your policies aren't consistent with that, or in the worst case, let's say your policies are driving behaviors that purposely aren't consistent with that, mm -hmm. that's going to be a problem. Um, and what do I mean by that? That's a tough concept. So just really, really quickly, sales organizations is a really good example. I will set an individual sales target, and then I will tell you, I want you to collaborate, but you can't share sales. What do you do? So I need to meet my target, but how am I going to help him? How am I going to collaborate if I can't share sales, as an example? Mm. Mm. Another really good example, um, in retail, organizations often use something called an attendance-based points system. You earn points anytime you're late to work or have to take a day off. And not the good kind of points. Nobody's going to be flying to vacation with these. These points lead to disciplinary <laughs> actions. Now think about what that's telling your employees. You had to take your kid to the doctor. That's just not as important as showing up to work. Mm -hmm. So how, how do leaders embed trust into their ecosystem so that they can, it's not just a kind of intentional communications leadership challenge, but it actually becomes a source of competitive advantage of an organization. So you turn this abstract idea into something more concrete. Trust should be the backbone of an organization. And it starts with measurement. So it starts with understanding where you're doing well and where you're not doing well. And it is something that you should continue to hold yourselves accountable for at a leadership level, as well as throughout the organization. We like to understand trust um, in a whole bunch of different ways. So we want to understand how much our customers trust us. We want to understand how much our employees trust us. We want to understand to what extent our B2B partners trust us. Each of those relationships can be measured and not to, not to sound scientific about it, but dissected to understand where we're doing well and where we're not. And just like any other organizational objective, once it's measured, you can start to understand what the gaps are and start to go back and fill them in. It needs to be an active and intentional component of any organization it is my hope that in a decade's time, when we're talking about trust again, trust will be something that organizations actually report out on in their annual financial statement. Arguably, given the competitive advantage that we can quantify it to be, it's a fiduciary responsibility. 
And the more organizations consider it to be a core part of how we work, the more they will earn and the more they will succeed. So speaking of a decade out, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how the challenge of building trust will evolve as AI becomes more of a norm. It's a great question. AI and Gen AI in particular is on the tip of everybody's tongue today. And we know that it will soon be taking over is the wrong word, but it'll be everywhere. We'll be interacting with AI and chatbots instead of service representatives. Marketing current content might be created by a bot versus a human being. So we know it's going to be there. What we've been encouraging our organizations to think about is yeah, you can't just have really good technology for AI. You also have to make sure that your humans trust your AI. Your technology may be amazing, but if your employees don't trust it, they're not going to use it. So design your AI with trust in mind. Give real thought to how do you take the four factors lens and apply it to building AI so that it is transparent, so that it is delivering on humanity, so that it is consistent mm. and reliable. When you design your AI with human trust in mind, then what you're going to see is a significant uptake in adoption that you might otherwise miss. Again, if people don't trust it, they won't use it. And I'm really interested in your perspective on trust and diversity, um, because you know when you think about core needs of people to feel valued in an environment, um, either as customers or as as employees, how does trust and and that set of issues interact with each other? Uh, that is a core component of trust in humanity. One of the things that drives humanity is feeling like my employer treats me with respect and values me. That suggests that we value everybody, regardless of identity, backgrounds, beliefs. It is a core driver of intent. And organizations are kind of held accountable for how they're demonstrating that intent, both with their words, but also in their actions. And I think as our organizations become increasingly diverse, we'll start to see different patterns emerging. Um, in customers, we don't actually see significant differences by ethnicity, for example, as customers. In organizations, we have seen, um, we've seen that go back and forth. When we started measuring trust in the pandemic, we saw significant differences by ethnicity. The more other you were, um, not heterosexual, not white, the less you trusted. Now, as the pandemic evened out and we started to have fewer rice riots and fewer um, things that were top of mind for people, we saw those trust scores come back and even out again. Trust is not stagnant. It changes and it will be influenced by the environment that we're in. So if our environment is truly that culture of respect, then you won't see changes by ethnicity. If it's not, that might indicate that you do have a humanity problem. So in a way, what you're describing there is a kind of barometer for leaders to be able to tap into the situational needs of leadership. Absolutely. And this is why I keep going back to measurement. It's really difficult to take action against something if you don't know what the problem is. So making sure you understand where you're falling down by group is really, really important. And it's often not going to be the same. In the work that we do with organizations, what I have found even is that most organizations are doing the right things. Um, I'm going to go off track here for a second, but I remember the first year of college, I was reading um, for intro to, intro to philosophy, Thomas Hobbes, the Leviathan. And in this book, he says, life is nasty, brutish, and short. And the only reason people behave is because we're watching you. We're in society with laws. And so if you weren't being watched by society, you'd do terrible things. At the same time, I was rereading Diary of Anne Frank. And at the end of it, after everything she's been through, she says, 
I still believe that people are truly good inside. And of those two spectrums, I am on the Anne Frank side. I really do think that people and organizations have the best of intentions. And scientifically, um, research shows that 75% or so of people would do something for somebody else, even at a cost to themselves. So if we take the fact or we believe that organizations are trying to do the right things, it's actually more about how they do them and who they do them for than it is being right or wrong. So when we go to help organizations build trust, we find there are lots of great things going on, but they might not be targeted to the right people. And this is particularly true on the customer side. Think about all the messages you get all day long, the spam emails, the pop-ups, the you're, you're just bombarded with information. And so if we aren't getting you the right message at the right time, you're very likely going to miss it. That's not going to do much for helping you to see what it is we're trying to help you with. On a couple of our most recent episodes, we've been talking about the importance of well-being in an organization and the need to build well-being into everything as a source of competitive advantage, right? And you're talking about trust as a source of competitive advantage. So I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts on the relationship between trust and personal well-being. Personal well-being is a huge driver of humanity. If I don't value your health and help take care of you, then I am not demonstrating that I value as a human. Um, we like to talk about it as you're not, you don't just show up and are an employee all of a sudden, you're the same person, whether you're an employee today and a mom at home. And if we're not thinking about you holistically as a human, then we're probably not doing our jobs. If at home, you're worried about being able to put food on the table or having a kid that's sick. And if I can't help you deal with those things, then you're going to show up as kind of part of yourself at work and not your whole self. So trust and well-being are deeply related. Ashley, what else should we be talking about? I'm just trying to think what messages I would encourage people to, to land with. I, if you're not measuring trust today, I hope you start. All of everything that I've been talking about, you can actually go download. We feel so passionately about trust being the right answer that we've made this all open source. You can go download the customer survey. You can go download the employee survey. And we hope you do. And we hope you start using them. The reason I'm so excited about trust is not just because it's a competitive advantage. It also creates the kinds of places that we want to work. So how many double whammies do we have like that, where if I invest in it, I know I'm going to get a competitive advantage, but I'm also going to create an organization I really want to be a part of. What's next for you then in your work? Um, ideally, helping more and more companies to go build trust. And then I'd also really like to start doing some more international work. We have started measuring trust ID in a handful, maybe a dozen or so countries. And I can say that the four factors, the four factors, that is simply how we build trust as humans. But how those four factors are developed really are different. So for example, I lived in Holland for quite some time and the Dutch are highly transparent. So much so that they are often considered to be the rude Europeans, if you will. They even have a word for it, right? Bespreekbaarheid. It means whatever can be talked about should be talked about. So transparency and Dutch um, basically means I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking right now. Now, fly to Japan, have a meeting, and you're going to find that transparency takes an entirely different flavor. I spent some time in Japan, and like the good little American kid, I'd show up my agenda, we'd go through it, we'd take everything off, everybody'd be nodding, we'd walk out of the meeting and think, success, we did it, and then nothing would happen. 
what I learned is that those head nods were not consent. It didn't mean yes. It just meant I'm listening. It turns out it's actually really impolite to disagree with somebody in public. So what I should have been listening for were those coughs and sneezes. Those are indications that what I'm saying isn't exactly kosher. I should go back to those people afterwards, find out what's not sitting well, and then we'll come back and make some choices again later. And moreover, I probably should never have just gone straight into a meeting, really nimawashi. So getting to know people, having a personal relationship is really important before you can make choices. So think about that and transparency. Transparency is still incredibly important, but the path to transparency is really different. Uh, final question for me, who's the... You know, you don't need to say the name of the person, but can you think of a leader that's really inspired you with their capacity to create trust in their organizations? I Well, one of the ones we write about in the book is Arnie Sorensen. Arnie was the CEO of Marriott, Marriott Hotels during the pandemic. And at the same time, he was also suffering from and later died from pan pancreatic cancer. When the pandemic hit, his top team had encouraged him not to tape a video. He was adamant that he wanted to come out and share messages with his colleagues and with his workers so that they understood what we were trying to do. And his top team said, no, Arnie, this is not a good idea. You look like a cancer patient. In fact, you are a cancer patient. And he did it anyway. And it was such a heartwarming, touching message. He clearly made himself vulnerable. He was clear about what he knew and what he didn't know and what they were going to do about it. And it just engendered such loyalty and support from his employees. I really think that being able to be vulnerable at a, as a leader is inspiring. And I think it's also the secret sauce that we tend to forget. As we grow up through organizations, we are rewarded based on our capability and our reliability, not necessarily our humanity and transparency. And when times get tough, when crisis hits, we fall back on our capability and our reliability and forget that it's important to be human too. So as leaders, when you can demonstrate your vulnerability, you are, you are really demonstrating a new and stronger level of leadership. I love that. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the, the work you've done. Uh, we'll put links to all your resources in the show notes. Um, and folks, make sure you order your copy of The Four Factors of Trust today. And until next time... Remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>